1: Welcome back to New Books in Historical Materialism. I am your host, Stephen Dozeman. The last several decades have seen a mass consolidation of wealth among a few, the rest of the world left to various degrees of dispossession. On top of this, the revolutionary movements that characterize much of the 19th and 20th centuries have generally disappeared or retreated, reform being the name of the game for most progressives. In spite of this, revolutionary movements and events have actually increased in the last few decades. This seeming contradiction is one of the animating ideas of the new essay anthology, Revolutionary Rehearsals in the Neoliberal Age. A sort of spiritual sequel to the 1987 collection Revolutionary Rehearsals, this book contains several essays on revolutionary movements of the neoliberal era ended by more theoretical chapters on the nature of social and political movements. International in scope, the essays start with the struggles in Eastern Europe at the end of the Cold War and end with the Arab uprisings in Egypt. In between are essays on South and Sub-Saharan Africa, Indonesia, Bolivia, Argentina, and Latin American pink tide movements. The book-ending essays deal with theoretical questions— The nature of political movements, contexts in which those movements arise, and how change can actually be brought about. Grounded in the reality of our dire political situation, but animated by the hope that change is always nevertheless a real possibility, the essays here will provide excellent starting points for activists to think critically about their own situations and how they might rise to meet them. Gareth Dale is Associate Head of the Department of Social and Political Sciences at Brunel University in London. His recent books include Karl Polanyi, A Life on the Left, and Reconstructing Karl Polanyi, Excavation and Critique. Colin Barker was a lifelong activist and author. His many publications included Revolutionary Rehearsals and Marxism and Social Movements. Neil Davidson was a lecturer in Sociology and Political Science. His many publications included How Revolutionary Were the Bourgeois Revolutions and Discovering the Scottish Revolution. Gareth Dale, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Well, thanks very much for having me.
1: Yeah, I always like to kick things off by having guests introduce themselves, maybe tell us a bit about who they are and what their work and research tends to focus on. Um, So I'd like to ask that of you, but also your co-editors, Colin Barker and Neil Davidson, who sadly cannot be here with us today. Uh, If you could maybe tell us a bit about uh, the kind of work and research they did as well, and also how the three of you came to work on this project together. How did this come about?
0: All right. Um, Well, my name is Gareth Dale. I teach politics at Brunel University here in London. Um, And my research has gone through several phases, really. In the first, I drew on my experience um, having lived in East Germany at the time of the revolution in 1989. And so my first tranche of research was on the political economy of East Germany and the revolutionary process of 89 to 90. Um, Following that, I moved largely into exploring the life and work of Karl Polanyi, the Hungarian political economist and anthropologist, economic anthropologist. Um, And then increasingly, since then, I've been working on um, issues related to uh, environmental crisis, um, to um, climate politics and the I, history of the ideology of economic growth. Um, so that's more or less what I I do. As to Colin and Neil, well, it's so they're the co-editors of this volume with me, and it's a, a tragic loss that neither of them are around any longer. They're, they're not with us any longer. Um, Colin, Neil, and I were all in a all shared a kind of revolutionary socialist politics we were in a small organization together here in Britain called RS21 and um, Colin's work Colin taught sociology in Manchester he was um, uh, particularly interested in Marxist theories of the state and capital and also in social movements he um, engaged he, he he sort of um developed a conversation between social movement theory and marxist theory um whereby he sort of sought to um illuminate uh mutually uh, he this this had been a sort of dialogue of the deaf um marxists have always been tremendously interested for obvious reasons in questions of collective action and social movements um but Without drawing much on social movement theory, and social movement theory increasingly has marginalised Marxism. Um, Colin was there at the hinge between these two areas. Um, Neil uh, worked uh, his his greatest book, I think, was um, uh, on the bourgeois on bourgeois revolution, which um, Verso brought out some years ago. And he's um, written on an encyclopedic range of subjects, including Scot- Scottish nationalism and the history of the Scottish nation, um, the Scottish Enlightenment, um, nations and nationalism, and a whole bunch of other um, areas. Yeah, so
1: um, to kind of like reiterate that first question, I'm wondering if you could maybe speak about how this book came about. It's kind of a a second edition of a book that came out some years ago um, under the same name, Uh, but what were kind of some of the uh, animating ideas when you all came together and decided you wanted to do a new edition.
0: That's right. Well, the, well, the first uh, the first book was called Revolutionary Rehearsals and Colin Barker edited it um, back in, I think it was 1987. And it was taking um, five uh, rebellions as its subject. Um, uh, they were... Um, uh, France, Paris in 1968, uh, Chile in 71 to 73, uh, Iran at the, the Iranian Revolution at the end of the 70s, um, uh, Solidarnosc in Poland, the Solidarity Movement uh, in Poland. And um, in all of these, so these were uprisings um, largely in what occurred during a great conjuncture of revolutionary and mass movement activity in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and in each of these, there was a very um, powerful role of militant workers at collective action. And um, for example, in Chile, forming the Cordones Councils and the oil workers in Iran forming the Shora Councils and the Interfactory Strike Committees that that were the organizational um, center of Solidarność in the northern port cities of Poland and then increasingly across the nation in, in 1980 to 81, um, bringing, creating... Um, situations temporarily or partially of, of dual power where where the worker-based movement can really contest um, go up against the institutions of the, of the bourgeois of the capitalist state. Um, we then revisited that book in the early 2010s. Neil and well, Colin began the project and um, Neil and I joined. And um, the question for us then was was this: it was that, um, you know, what has happened to revolutionary movements and revolutionary risings in the neoliberal age? Um, Because actual uh, uprisings, revolutionary uprisings, had become even more substantially more common. Uh, in the neoliberal era than, than previously. I mean, we look at several in, in the book. We look at East Europe in 1989, South Africa in the early 90s. We look at various uprisings in sub-Saharan Africa, in Indonesia, in Bolivia, Venezuela, Argentina, the Arab Spring, you name it. There are, and there are a great many more than that. Um, uh, Mark Beisinger, um, who has um, sifted through the data on this, reckons that that revolutions have become much more common in recent decades than than previously. Revolutions, in other words, by which we mean um, uh, mass mobilizations that that, um, lead to regime change uh, of one form or another. Um, And so on the one hand, we had, had noticed this proliferation of uprisings and revolutionary situations in the neoliberal age, um, and some of them had led to major political break, breakthroughs, you know, oppressive regimes collapsing, democratization in some cases, a recognition given to indigenous people in Bolivia, for example, the end of apartheid in South Africa. You know, some of these changes were momentous. But at the same time, we'd seen a, the, 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 an ebbing of the sorts of struggles that had embodied new forms of working class power and workers militancy, and this had coincided with a, an ebbing of historical imagination on the left, of, of revolutionary of revolutionary hopes and dreams, and perspectives on the left across much of the world. It was a period of of movement downturn in a sense, despite this proliferation of revolutionary rising. So the the book is really looking at this. Par, uh, the, the the book looks at, at at a couple of major issues, including um, long term. Trajectory and prospects for um, socialist revolution, but but the bulk of the book consists of chapters looking at revolutionary risings in the neoliberal period, um, and finding in them the moments of embryonic popular power that could could that that sowed the seeds for or showed potential for um, for um, uh, the, the 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 constitution of a dual power situation in which um, popular agency can challenge state power. Um, but that potential was always um, snuffed out, deflected, co-opted, uh, and so on to a much greater degree than in the previous phase of Collins' earlier book. So that's essentially what the, this um, uh, more recent book is doing.
1: Yeah, maybe to kind of try and flesh this out a little bit, I um, I want to ask, so you're calling these revolutionary rehearsals. So like, well, you know, we could say like something like October 1917 is kind of maybe a model of revolution in kind of this in a broad theoretical sense. Um, None of these actually panned out the essays you have um, as kind of a long-term revolutionary situation. Uh, But I would also say that there's more to these moments your writers uh, talk about than just, it's not just a big protest, for example. There's often something more going on. So like at what point um, would you say that something goes from being just uh, a protest and turns into a movement, if that makes sense? Um.
0: Right, yeah, no, it does make sense. I mean, we're, we're going beyond um, looking at simply incidents of protest or even social movements. We're looking at the situation that arises where movements gather this sort of force at a particular conjuncture where uh, regimes are perhaps divided or um, or fissures and cracks are appearing in the edifice of regime power that um, leads to political situations of political conflict that ramify right up to the top of the state um and which and uh, so that is the setting that, that 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 uh merits the term revolutionary uh situation um and the question then is whether the uh, a movement from below can um gather force to push through and overturn uh, a, a government, and then beyond that, you need to distinguish different meanings of the sorts of revolutions that that, that arise. I mean, in the book, we use the distinction between political and social revolutions. Whereby, um, so we're talking here of the outcomes of episodes of revolution, both in both political and social revolutions. You see struggles and conflicts between the regime on the one hand and the and those who are contending for power. But in a political revolution, only the the type of state is, the, the sort of personnel of the state, the regime itself, or perhaps its constitution is, is altered in that revolution, whereas social revolutions are much, 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 much rarer. Um, but we're speaking here of the revolutions that alter the social system or what mar- we Marxists call the, the mode of production. So we're looking at the, the bourgeois revolutions that ushered in um, and consolidated politically, consolidated a form of state um, that enabled um, independent centres of capital accumulation to evolve in, in across, the wor- across the world. The bourgeois revolutions um, and potentially, in, you know, the, the, the glimpses we've seen of, of socialist revolution, glimpses that have only existed briefly, really, in, in the Paris Commune in one city for a few months in the eighteen seventy um in russia for just a few years we would argue in 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 the aftermath of the october revolution that you mentioned um and so be- through this nomenclature we also make the distinction um between bourgeois revolutions and and what you might call potentially socialist revolutions in other words um uh the the latter is in a situation of huge upsurge in popular mass activity and collective self-collective self, uh, action that that shows the potential to push beyond the institutions of bourgeois rule in which that, that govern the, uh, the world um, today. So they're the sorts of um, terms that we're using to um, peg down the argument that we make in the book.
1: Yeah, another uh, distinction that might be worth uh, fleshing out is the uh, contrast between uh, revolutionary movements versus reformist ones. Um, So often these can get kind of blurred together in very difficult ways uh, that can cause cause problems down the line because often they'll share certain goals or aspirations, um, you know, the emancipation of certain groups or certain changes in policy, but they'll differ in maybe either an ultimate goal or means, uh, how to achieve certain things. And in some of the introductory uh, essays, you spent some time kind of talking about the tension uh, between these two approaches. Could you speak to that?
0: Sure. I mean, I I think the first thing to be said is that that (laughs) what characterizes the distinction of reformist and revolutionary approaches is not simply the consciousness of actors in what you might call these camps but how the movements that they're forming relate to um dynamic changing the the, the changing dyna- dynamics of, of 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 politics um in the sense that you know you can be consciously part of a reformist movement if you like um, without any conception that you could be contributing to revolutionary change, but the, the, as the as the edifice of the regime under which you live begins to crack and crumble, your movement can be contributing to its fall, uh, even though that is not your uh, that 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 may not be your goal. Um, and likewise you can be um, consciously subjectively a, a, a revolutionary but in non-revolutionary times there won't be a great deal that you can you can be doing to usher in revolution that's the here here um neil davidson in his final chapter of the of the volume talks about you know the the um the need to to in 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 non-revolutionary times to maintain uh uh, a, a an overall perspective on revolutionary change such that we are ready for those moments when um rapid when social inst- and political instability does um, usher in a, a period of uprisings and mass movements that we don't by and large see at the moment.
1: Yeah, moving along, uh, you also spend some time uh, talking about uh, the actuality of revolution um, and a revolutionary situation, which requires a few ingredients. On the one hand, uh, you talk about uh, material conditions that can give rise to a revolutionary situation, as well as revolutionary preparedness. So, uh, you know, groups and agents who are able to kind of take these sorts of political powder kegs and actually do something with them. Uh, could you speak a bit to that?
0: Right. Well, yeah, this, um, this, uh, the actuality of revolution that you refer to is a, is a, um, a phrase that Neil is using in the chapter that I've, I've, he, he's developing this, this idea in the chapter that I mentioned earlier, I'm um, drawing on George Lukacs's book on Lenin, um, and Neil distinguishes several different aspects of what he refer, what he calls the actuality of revolution. One that you mentioned is, you know, the material pre- preconditions um, for a revolution. In terms when we're looking towards socialist revolution, this is, um, you know, debates on this have uh, related to the, the the level of development of productive forces, the degree to which the working class has reached a. A point, a, a critical mass within society that it it, it is um, able to um, to you know affect large scale social change, or or it's able, or movements based within the working class, I should say, are capable of moving that agenda along. Um, and then the second meaning of actuality is. Again, when you mentioned the, rev- the prepared, preparedness of the actual movements themselves. So that's, a, that's at the level of consciousness. Then a third key sort of coordinate is revolutionary situations, um, because that you may you may be in a an era of where the material preconditions for a socialist revolution exist, and the revolutionary preparedness of certain movements exist, but but without uh, actual um, conflictual uh, uh, moment of of, uh, of 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 um, social and political conflict, without that revolutionary situation, then challenging for leading a challenge to the the institutions of power is is not possible at that moment and and so finally neil moves on to the fourth criterion of actuality which is the revolutionary conjuncture these are periods of history where where revolutionary change moves from being a sort of uh, abstract idea to a real imminent possibility that masses of people have in their consciousness have in their minds where the question of state power is not necessarily being posed in your country but um around the world uh, uh mass movements are posing questions of that challenge the, the the social system itself
1: yeah one thing you brought up was the idea of a revolutionary conjun- conjuncture um One thing I noticed when I was kind of reading on that is that you seem to be, or or maybe it's better to say Neil, is pushing for an understanding of revolutions as a process rather than as an isolated moment. So there's uh, several stages of, you know, building preparedness, building power that can then take advantage of a revolutionary situation. But he's trying to extend our understanding of that process um, into kind of uh, a broader terrain. He's trying to expand it, so we're not just thinking of, you know, the day everyone shows up at the square with flags. He's trying to think of it as this longer uh, process of building and building up. Uh, could you maybe speak to that kind of attempt to shift our understanding of what a revolution is?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, this this is the the point that Nils um, really homing in on here is the the way in which these uh, the revolutionary conjunctures that, in which the world really changes dramatically um, in the wake of them and the potential for change is, is awakened, is lit up. Um, these tend to be quite long, quite compressed historically, but processes, but ones that la- last for some years and also which spread internationally. So you can look at different moments of world history in, um, Think, for example, of the late 18th century. Um, this was the time of the revolutions in, in, the, in America, in the US, sorry, in, um, in France, in Haiti, um, the United Irishmen, their movement in, in Ireland um, and others elsewhere. This you, you see compressed into a, um, a couple of decades there, um, a series of movements which which relate to one another, you know. The Haitian Revolution obviously relates to the French Revolution, the, and the the the, the were personnel exchanges between, you know, activists in in the U.S. in the sorry in North America and in um, in France. There were, um, I you know, the 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 spark of revolution. It's periods when the spark of revolutionary change in one country lights up similar movements or contributes to similar movements elsewhere. Um, another great period is the period that of the 1840s chartism in 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 britain and then um and then the revolutions across europe in 1848 um then later on the 19 late 1910s into the early 20s across the world really um then around the time of the end of the second world war um especially in east asia if you look at the the industrial struggles in Japan in the '40s, and then moving down to Korea, China, the um, the 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 revolution there in 1940, 1949, Vietnam, Indonesia, and across the world in Greece, the civil war at times often of um, of international structural change, uh, where the geopolitical matrix is changing. Um, for example, the rise of nation states and the national principle in the, in the 1840s, the breakdown of empires in, in the 1910s, the, the dramatic changes in the form of empire and nation state at the, at, the, at the end of the Second World War. And then finally, we saw an enormous, uh, enormously influential conjuncture in the late '60s and '70s, um, but since then, not so much. There have been these uh, this proliferation of revolutions that we discuss in the book. There've been some, some of which have transcended national boundaries. The Arab Spring, most is is the one that comes to mind most immediately, um, but not at the scale. Um, not with the system changing potential that we saw in in those previous episodes that really qualify as revolutionary conjunctures. Now you can, well, so, so the question is, you know, will one of these global eruptions come along in future, I suppose? Um, you could say you could argue that these, these revolutionary conjunctures that I've been speaking about, each of which, what occurred when a certain aspect of the political matrix appropriate to capitalism was being levered into place, the ones I mentioned earlier, the rise of nation states, the breakdown of empires, and so on. Um, if you make that argument, then you might predict that nowadays in the world of, of essentially uh, the political form of capitalism worldwide is the nation state. Um, you might predict no future... Dramatic shifts of that sort, or but I but we argue in the book that um uh, the in the volume that global phases of mass collective action uh, will not have disappeared for good. Class conflict can often seem very localized or very or even dormant, um, but I think there's every reason to expect its return, especially as world politics becomes. Uh, increasingly, I think we can predict unstable um, in terms of the polycrisis that we're experiencing in these decades of, you know, increasing intensity of of spread of disease, of epidemics, pandemics, of climate change, most obviously, of the shift from away from U.S. hegemony and um, and the potential instabilities that that will give rise to and and so forth um and all set against the 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 increasing global polarization of wealth that um is leading to leading to extraordinary plutocratic tendencies and so so these corrosive and destabilizing um tendencies in in world politics are, are likely we argue in the book to um provide conditions for renewed mass collective action and the question then will be at what point do they cohere to do, do these actions in individual nation states cohere together and uh light touch papers begin to cascade across uh across regions uh, or even worldwide at which point, then the greats, the grand systemic questions begin to take take real meaning, which are, you know, what what do we do about capitalism? Above all,
1: yeah, I want to pick up a thread you were kind of developing in that last answer, um, particularly on uh, international context. Uh, so. I would agree with you what you said earlier that, uh, the Russian revolution kind of only lasted really a few years, but there was a period of time where there was this common turn, uh, that was trying to also encourage revolution across the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. Um, you know, at least kind of in theory, and there was, uh, there have been at various times in history, these kind of international institutions that are trying to connect different revolutionary movements and provide kind of this broader context where even if a movement is in one sense, local, it understands itself to be part of this uh, broader worldwide context. Um, And you talk in the, I think it's the introductory essay that these sorts of institutions are not quite as prominent today, especially on the left. There's not as strong a sense of uh, belonging to this sort of international movement, this worldwide movement. Could you maybe speak to that fragmentation?
0: Yeah, sure. That's an interesting question. I mean, the way the way I see it is that on the one on the one hand, we um, we inherit today um, several decades in which um, system changing or system or systemically oriented protest movements have been at an ebb on the left worldwide has been struggling to um, maintain its relevance um, we've seen some periodic upsurges the the global justice movement at the uh, or the anti-globalization movement as it was sometimes known at the at the start of the 2000s. And then the Arab Spring revolts connected to movements elsewhere in the world. They helped helped inspire move, the movements of the indignados in Spain, for example. The Tahrir Square in Cairo, the occupation of that square, uh, led or, or in, helped to inspire um, town square occupying movements elsewhere in the world. Um, we have... So, 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 we're in this curious situation where there are no, um, where there are relatively few strong radical leftist organizations that can coordinate world-straddling um, internationalist movements or organizations um, to coordinate activities in the way that was done by the First International and the and to, in some ways by the second and briefly the third internationals that you mentioned earlier. Um, but on the other hand, we uh, live in a world that's more globalized than ever and in which um, activists learn very quickly of movements elsewhere in the world and uh, an inspiration leaps across the world very, very rapidly. If you th- think, for example, about the Me Too movement, um uh it i i wouldn't wa- i wouldn't wish to suggest that there was a global a single coordinated movement of led by women against the oppression of women and sexual harassment in the workplace and and, and so on nonetheless you you did you, we have seen a rolling wave over the last decade or two of Me Too like movements against rape in India, against um, harassment in various parts of the world, um, and they relate to one another. It has it's the the internationalism of, of it of this movement is clear to see. Again, if you look at the movement for Black Lives, that Black Lives Matter, um, a movement, the revolutionary its revolutionary spirit and mass was. Um, you know, overwhelmingly most important in the United States. But it has it's, um, inspired similar, smaller movements elsewhere in the world, including here in Britain.
1: Yeah, another thing I want to tease out. Uh, so the first book was just revolutionary rehearsals. This book is revolutionary rehearsals in the neoliberal age. So I think it's worth maybe teasing out. Uh, what is meant by that or what the sort of implications uh, will be for neoliberalism. And since you were just uh, mentioning uh, Me Too, uh, one thing you talk about in the book is that uh, under neoliberalism, uh, the sorts of social movements that are springing up uh, have generally been more diverse. Um, So it's not just uh, union struggles of, you know, working class versus, Bourgeois, but there's been a host of other social movements that have sprung up around a more diverse array of causes. Uh, could you maybe speak to that increasing diversity and what that looks like?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right that we're in a period in which um, movement that there's an increasing diversity of movements, um, including the ones that I just mentioned in my last response. Um, though we. That we should, that, that I should raise the caveat, really, that um, that I think there's something of a widespread legend that um, that the, the pretty much the only st- sort of collective action that existed and to which the to which leftists gravitated, on, say a hundred years ago, was um, workplace. Activity um, with trade union involvement. I mean, certainly the trade unions were very strong in the middle in 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 the core countries of the world in the mid part of the last century, um, and there were massive workers' struggles, often involving workplace action uh, in the nineteen. 19- 1920s, as we were just discussing earlier, syndicalist movements and so on, and yet the the great revolutionary upheavals that we were discussing earlier um, were driven as much by non workplace issues. You know, I think of the role of the uh, opposition to war in the in at the time of the First World War, or the anti Vietnam protests in uh, the 1960s in late sixties America, early seventies. Or again, um, environmental movements too. You know, the here in Britain, the um, the movement that kicked off the new unionism in the late nineteenth century began with the strike of the the match girls in a phosphorus factory, I think it was, um, which in part had a you know an environmental health safety aspect to it. This has always been part of workplace. Uh, based issues, which um, extends into the into the broader um, social sphere. Um, so, so class struggle in the way that we present it in the volume is has always been about much much more than simple uh, straight workplace issues. These are usually and at some points are absolutely central parts of. The, you know, obviously, of course, of the labour movement, but um, but labor's interests go go far beyond that. They go into this all spheres of of life, um, which of you know, which affect us all. Social reproduction has increasingly become a term that that enables us to theorise this. That, uh, that uh, above all, that feminists have um, uh, injected in, into the into the theorization of class struggle struggles over housing over education um, over health over welfare these have been real flashpoints in in struggles that 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 we discuss in the book for example in in Bolivia the water wars were 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 in Cochabamba in the early um 2000s uh for example as a case in point um so social reproduction um struggles and struggles that we were referring to earlier as as around diverse issues or diversity issues or issues of oppression of race and gender for example and sexuality these have become increasingly important in the in the neoliberal age but they their lineage traces back much further than that I think the overall in when we look at neoliberalism we see we divide it into um several phases Uh, in the 1990s this was the triumphant phase of neoliberalism and the um and revolutionary risings in that period often fell quite quickly into a a liberal resolution in terms of a uh, in terms of neoliberal economic reform and democratization of politics but increasingly, as, neoliberal, as neoliberalism became acknowledged and perceived as the, as the economic regime, the dominant economic regime worldwide, more and more of the revolutionary risings that we discuss in the volume witness protests against uh, neoliberal reform. And increasingly, they, neol- opposition to neoliberalism it becomes part of the fibre of those protests, Going back, I think you know we can trace this back to um, some of the revolutionary risings in sub-Saharan Africa in the in the in the in the late eighties and early nineties. Uh, the Zapatista movement in Mexico, for example, increasingly as these movements gathered um, force over the late nineties and into the two thousands. Critique and hostility to neoliberal reform became central to them, culminating in the Arab Spring, uh, which were revolts clearly against um, neoliberal uh, forms of governance.
1: Yeah, uh, picking this thread up and connecting it to uh, what we were talking about earlier with the kind of international context. So, different parts of the world have experienced neoliberalism in very different ways. So, in some parts of the world, there was kind of a deindustrialization, um, whereas for others, uh, that was kind of how they were industrialized. Um, and then other parts of the world experienced uh, widespread disposition. Um, so I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about uh, kind of how neoliberalism appeared in a very different guise, uh, depending on where you
0: were. Um, sure. Yeah. The, we've seen very different kind of rhythms of struggle and and in 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 different parts of the world along divided along in in the way that you just mentioned um so in 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 states such as the us and and britain um in the 1980s 1990s deindustrialization was part of the neoliberal experience and was uh and one was uh, the background against which we saw a decline in in um, trade union membership um, and a weakening of the left in uh, parts of East Asia, above all China, as it becomes the workshop of the world in the 1990s and 2000s, um, an increasingly neoliberalized form of state capitalism uh, was the political economic regime, uh, which Oversaw the trans- rapid transformation of that country, and a, and a, 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 a militant, militant but heavily, su- heavily repressed struggles have uh, have been the order of the day in China for a very long time. Um, I mean, recently we've seen a a, a glimpse of um, much more, even more politicized proto revolutionary activity in China. Um, which, though, was very quickly suppressed. Um, but it did provide another little glimpse of um, of the radicalism that we can we can sometimes see in, in highly authoritarian societies when when collective actors gather together and achieve a critical mass, even if ephemerally, as, as in at the end of November in China. Um, and dispossession, you mentioned as well. Yeah, I again, as the the neoliberal phase of capitalism has um, ground on into its zombie phase, um, that uh, as some people refer to it, um, we've seen issues of um, dispossession and and extractivism come to the fore in um, in the way that uh, that. Um, political economy in Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa have been, um, theorized and experienced. So, yeah. 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 Another
1: element you, uh, talk about under neoliberalism is changes to the nature of the state. And since you're talking about movements that will inevitably have to confront the state, this will mean there are different, uh, sorts of targets, points of political pressure, um, where you'll want to try and apply uh, political pressure, I mean, uh, and new forms of reaction and counter-revolution that show up. So I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, how the nature of the state broadly has changed under neoliberalism and how movements will need to take that into account. What what, is, what looks different under neoliberalism?
0: Right. Well, if we're looking at forms of state under neoliberalism, we have to... Um, incorporate the point you made earlier about the highly differentiated nature of, uh, neoliberal governance around the world, you know, um, uh, in, in its heyday, the sort of triumphalist neoliberal period, we saw, um, we saw a commitment particularly pushed by Washington, um, to, um, to the to to global democratization um and you know in theory to 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 the sort of francis fukuyama school of political thought it seemed at the time that um that the world was moving towards a, a an end state of um of democratic capitalism um but as as history has has carried on since then, we've seen retrenchment, we've seen um, de-democratization, and the return of authoritarianism in some parts of the world. Uh, and um, and and so the 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 resulting pattern is a very um, divergent one. Um, increasingly, I suppose we see. Uh, powerful neoliberalism has entrenched, further entrenched, the power of capital. Um, that is its, you know, its uh, trademark, I suppose. And um, this, this, uh, this tends to go along with a, at least in the core countries, with a, with commitment to formal democracy whilst the substance of democracy becomes more and more eroded i mean look at the look at the political consequences of the uh, astonishing amalgamation of or amassing of wealth in the hands of the hyper rich the elon musk taking over twitter the jeff bezos taking over the washington post the increasingly plutocratic nature of american politics and and other and British politics and so on so there are there, there, there's a yeah these are these strike me as being the tendencies that we've see, we've seen under neoliberalism initially uh, a widespread uh liberal optimism of, of global democracy which as time has gone on has waned that optimism has waned and authoritarianism has returned in parts of Eastern Europe and has has Retained its strength in China and uh, in many other countries too. Whilst also, we have seen a a, a sort of a, a thinning of, a weakening of of the substance of democracy and even in its core, even in the core countries, um, which previously were were hardly paragons of democratic virtue i mean look at the american constitution for example or look at the house of lords and the role of the monarchy in britain nonetheless we have we have tended to see a further weakening which which is why which is well one of the reasons why when we see uprisings of the sort that we've been discussing today break out around the world like the indignados in spain What was it ten years ago or so? Um, Sometimes one of the battle cries of these movements is real democracy. Movements of this, the 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 revolutionary movements that we've been discussing, tend to mobilize around um, uh, economic issues, around issues of social reproduction, but also also call tend to call for um, social justice and and some kind of real democracy. I mean, that was the term, I think, in in Spain, but we find similar terms elsewhere in in in, in mass protest movements.
1: Yeah, moving along, you mentioned climate change earlier, and I think there's an increasing kind of consensus and awareness that uh, climate change is going to create a lot of political instability. Uh, what I'm wondering if you could maybe flesh out is how do you see climate change creating situations of revolutionary potential? What are the kind of sorts of powder kegs that it is going to generate across the world?
0: <laughs> well, that's a, a,
1: a huge a, question,
0: a but, huge, you know, like that's I, a tricky one. I mean, the, I as I see it, I mean, well, first of all, I should say that I'm I'm stu- I'm just stunned by the conjuncture we're in um, as a world at the moment where. Um, I mean, the prospect of nonlinear climate change is so terrifying uh, that we are so momentous that we're really looking at the possibility increasingly tangible of um, processes that completely uh, defy any form of human control and will just hurl the world towards um, temperature rises of, you know, four by the end of the century, four degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial level, which could lurch upwards conceivably to even 12 degrees. I mean, we're talking about the prospect of, um, I mean, the re- you can see the real potential for uh, the human species um, going under, along with um, hundreds of thousands of our other species. It's an extraordinary um, uh, vista to behold and it's quite stunning how i mean even the united nations is is talking about even you, you know um, antonio gutierrez the general secretary of the united nations has spoken in these terms that you know we need to act quite st- incredibly rapidly and radically uh, otherwise we're looking at um, the prospect of human extinction even um, or certainly mass death and mass um, species wipeout, uh, and yet business as usual trundles on, and um, the, the the strange form of climate denialism, which takes often takes the form of sort of climate delay or just deflecting responsibility for change, um, continues. Uh, so, clear, you know. Uh, the, the prospect then, as I see it, is that uh, there being so little real movement towards decarbonisation at the moment, uh, we're going to be seeing increasingly intense uh, weather events, increasing destruction, uh, increasing levels of um, displacement of human beings. By climate change usually they'll be kept within regions and prevented from traveling to the global north but um increasingly this will become a destabilizing factor in various parts of the world um i think it it will most likely lead to forms of political polarization um you know a, a far-right or fascist response being to um to um shut the hatches against uh, refugees uh bolt the gates and um build and the, the wall build the wall and um exactly and uh ig- ignore the the you know refre- ref- refuse to take serious action against um against uh, uh fossil fuel the fossil fuel industry um and on the other hand we we'll, we're we've already been seeing incredibly inspiring movements the um the Fridays for Future movement of school students taking strike action against uh to draw attention to climate change we'll see um more and more direct action by the likes of extinction rebellion and here in britain just stop oil for example um, and increasing uh, repressive, uh, uh, you know, increasing repression by by states of those movements. Um, so, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't directly answer your question, um, but certainly, I think the bottom. I think what is obvious is that you know, climate change will have such profound effects on things like food prices um that all forms of increasing increasingly the forms of collective the, the the collective action um events that we see around the world for example riots over food prices w- will increasingly be partly influenced by climate the consequences of climate change itself yeah do you see um so i think there's kind
1: of I want to try and tease this out a little bit. So you're talking about how movements might be responding in part to climate change, perhaps without consciously responding to climate change. They're responding to maybe uh, one of the symptoms, if that makes sense. Um, Do you see potential for these movements to kind of start to kind of see that there's an underlying cause between them all that might... Kind of eventually build up to a more kind of socialist revolutionary orientation. Um, you know, how do you see that playing out over the next couple decades?
0: Yeah, I think um, I think you've put that very well. Certainly, that's how I, I do see it. Um, I, the one of the curious um, aspects of the political con- conjuncture we're in at the moment is that there are, the left is not very robust world worldwide, generally speaking. Um, and yet, at the same time, there is a very widespread consciousness um, that there is something broken about the system, the social system under which we live. I mean, this is ex- extremely widespread, and it it is geared around issues of uh, wealth accumulation and poverty, but also around the question of the en- environmental destruction. And uh, since we know that uh, the environmental n- destruction is that that dynamic is going to get more and more visible as with each season. Um, I think we can predict that that anti-systemic or sy- system critical consciousness um, will certainly have the opportunity to grow. I mean, whether it remains relatively dormant and not organized in in directly in radical movements and socialist organizations and such like, uh, what what happens to that? To that general consciousness is harder to predict, but I think we, it's safe to say that uh, climate change is so profoundly reshaping the world and so profoundly um, threatening to our collective future that um, more and more people will uh, be be relating to that in politically in some way or other. For the left, it's up to you know it's up to left wing activists to try and gather um, that critical consciousness as far as possible into, into socialist movements.
1: Yeah. uh, As kind of a way of closing this off. um, So climate change is a great way to end. I'm talking about uh, hope versus cynicism or pessimism. Um, So you told me in an email that the book is in certain respects, kind of pessimistic, that it's, you know, not, uh, Overly excited about prospects for the future, um, but I think there's kind of a, a tension a lot of people, especially activists, uh, often experience between, uh, you know, getting excited about uh, you know every particular movement, thinking like this is this is the moment where it's happening. But if that keeps not happening, um, you can get kind of burned out. You can get cynical. Uh, at the same time. Uh, you know, others will try will try, and hopefully succeed in kind of finding this kind of broader um, vision of context to understand themselves in. So I'm wondering if you could speak a bit to kind of this tension of uh, maintaining hope uh, without getting burned out, you know, after every kind of moment that fails to pan out in a revolutionary way. Um, you know, how do you see activists, you know, hopefully kind of cultivating a vision that allows them to be both realistic, but still kind of hopeful.
0: Right. Well, yeah, it's, it's become so widely quoted that it's almost a cliche by now that Gramsci's um, phrase uh, uh, referring to um, optimism of will and pessimism of the intellect. I mean, that's very much our our position in the volume. Um, We, you know, I suppose our the optimism that we're arguing for in the volume is is to remind our readers and to theor, help theorize the the idea that the 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 revolutionary conjunctures that we were discussing earlier do periodically occur, and that the action of militants of individuals in their community organizations or in their workplaces or in their trade unions, um, the actions of militant individuals setting up campaigns, linking to other campaigns, intervening in a rapidly changing political situation, these actions can be um, world transforming, um, you know, in a butterfly effect kind of way. Um, And so... It's uh, that the volume brings together a lot of quite um, pessimistic analysis. I suppose you know we're looking at a lot of revolutionary risings, none of which came any anywhere near to uh, fulfilling the potential that we see in glimpses in the grassroots movements that we're um, narrating. Um, all of them see counter-revolution. In a gentler democratic um, form or in a brutal authoritarian form all of them see counter-revolution uh, triumph and the the those revolutionary risings are, are brought back down to earth amidst sometimes amidst quite a lot of blood as in the case of egypt for example the massacres that we saw there in 2013 i think it was um, but but we also give in the volume lots of examples of moments where, yeah, militant individuals acting with confidence, building the confidence of others, um, seeing, sensing opportunities for political action and, and for the building of organization, um, where those acts can really be world-changing in their ramifications, and um, so yes, it's it's a generally pessimistic book. We believe that capitalism is in any form is uh, going to be very destructive of um, of the lives of the poor, especially in the countries of the periphery. It's going to be very destructive of the world's environment, I mean, cataclysmically so. Um, Even even a social a more social democratic form of capitalism would be because it's still driven by the same imperative of um, of of accumulation. Um, uh, So we're pessimistic at that level, but we also do believe um, and make the and we make the case in the in the book that it is important to um, you know to win people to a revolutionary perspective, the idea that grassroots movements, anti-systemic movements can build and interlink such that in periods of revolution, of crisis, of revolutionary situation, especially where those, um, uh, uh, explode around the world in the, in the sort of several years long conjunctures, revolutionary conjunctures that we discussed earlier, that, um, this could, that this, this is, this does give us, hope in the long term that um that this uh nefarious this infernal competitive uh, exploitative oppressive social order in which we live can be overcome
1: yeah that's a good note to end on so as a final question i always like to ask guests what if anything are you working on now do you have any big projects you're working on anything we can look forward to
0: from you in the near or far future oh um I hadn't anticipated that question. I'm At the moment, I'm just working on some very small pieces, um, one on the political economy of hydrogen for um, The Conversation and one on the political thought of Otto Neurath for Jacobin Magazine. Um, beyond that, uh, yeah, I'm not sure yet. Um, I mean, the question of the ideology of economic growth and its history has long intrigued me. So I'll I'll be doing some more work on that in, in, in the next year or two.
1: Excellent. So we'll look forward to that from you. So in the meantime, Gareth Dale, thank you so much for
0: being with us. Thank you. Thank you too.